Welcome to Houston Sports Talk with your host, Robert Land. Thanks for checking into the best Houston sports podcast and joining me for a Texans midweek look at a huge Astros rumor as Sports Radio 610's Sean Bajani will be doing this midweek regularly during Texan season. So make sure to hit subscribe on YouTube. We've got over 40 years combined in sports journalism between us, 35 years in the Houston market. And Sean, You've been at NRG all week, and I want to fly through the big Texans storylines. Are we going to see more of Damian Pierce in Denver? That's the big question from all the fans. Yeah, it was a big answer from Lovey Smith uh, at his Wednesday availability. Um, he said as much. Uh, he understood it uh, even after the game, the day after. Um, he even felt like uh, you know Pierce should have had more carries against the Indianapolis Colts. You could read that a couple of different ways, though, which I kind of thought interesting because the way that Lovey Smith initially answered that question uh, on Monday, I can't say anything about Sunday uh, after the game because I was in the locker room and I didn't hear um, and I don't remember what the transcript said in regards to his post game. But what he did say Monday, I found kind of interesting because the way that he broke that down, it was after a John McLean question and McLean asked uh, Lovey Smith, hey, you know, to get Damian Pierce more um, involved in in the offense and get him on the field more, does he need to be a better pass catcher? Does he need to be a better runner? Does he need to be a better, uh, you know, does he need to pick up the blitz better? These things. And Lovey Smith answered, well, all of those, really. And then he went on with his explanation. And I kind of found that interesting because, you know, if you're, if you feel so good about a running back, so early on in training camp in the preseason, really, um, and are going to limit him to so few snaps, but then go ahead and not put him in in a regular season game in crucial downs and crucial moments, then what are we doing? And I thought that was, you know, a mistake on behalf of the coaching staff. Like, they saw and they liked something. They liked that bright, shiny new toy, you know, uh, window shopping, but then they're eh, they're afraid to use it, you know, and they don't want to break anything. But when you really need a guy um, and that toy is going to come in handy and it's going to do something that your old toy can't do, you're not going to use it because of what? It's, he's just not ready or you're not ready. I didn't like that. Yeah, I agree. We all agree. Everybody agrees except the Texans, I think. And uh, there's another guy besides Pierce who didn't see a lot on Sunday, and I want to get to him. But first, I want to remind you to subscribe, like, and comment for everybody out there watching on YouTube. That's how you can support the show. And yes, I read every comment. So tell me if you're enjoying our videos and if there are any Texans angles you want us to discuss. We'd love to hear from you guys. Now, Sean, Nico Collins, one catch. That's it. Just a couple of targets Sunday. Kind of a shock after their preseason chemistry and their offseason work that that's where we're at with him after one game three targets two catches you got to give him that one um okay he, he, the, the first <laughs> <laughs> the first time that mills targeted him it was like with 21 seconds remaining in the first half the first time he targeted him and you know we're all sitting in the press box kind of side-eyeing each other and we're like what's going on you know what are we doing here Look, if you look at the overall numbers, Davis Mills did spread the ball around. He targeted 11 different receivers, completed passes to nine of them. Nico uh, was looked at three times, and he caught two balls. Brandon Cooks, yet again, led this team in receiving with seven catches and 82 yards. We asked Nico Collins, um, who I feel like 
really tries to ditch us in the locker room. <laughs> like, this was the first time that I've been able to talk to him, like, all season long. And I think maybe they shot him up at the podium once during training camp. I can't remember. But I was like, oh, he talks really fast, you know, but at least he's talking to us. So that's kind of cool. Um, we talked to Nico today. We talked to Brandon Cooks today. Um, we didn't ask Lovey Smith about the Nico Collins situation. I think that's probably a better suited question anyway for Pep Hamilton. And we might get him uh, ahead of the Broncos game. I'm not sure. But Nico did basically just dumb it down to this today. And it was like, hey, man, it's week one. It's early in the season. It's not a big deal. You know, we've all got things we have to work on, and we're working on them today in practice. Um, Mills was a little bit more forthright than that of Davis Mills and was like, hey, look, you know, we got a lot of work to do. Mills does have packages. He has route concepts, you know, that he's certainly involved in and will be looked at early on in um, my progressions. But he also has some things that he's doing within our scheme that, you know, are setting up and helping other receivers, um, you know, get open as well. And I thought that was kind of interesting and maybe a little bit more forthright than Davis Mills or any really quarterback typically is. And Mills was very good today um, in breaking down um, some other stuff within his game alone. And I, I thought that was interesting. And I certainly think it is early, um, you know, maybe when the pressure's on a little bit, when they had to throw the ball, they're trying to get back in the game. They're trying to take a lead. They're trying to sustain drives. You're going to key on the guy that you you have a, a chemistry with and you can go to. And even he and um, by he, I mean uh, Davis Mills, even Davis and Brandon had their miscommunications uh, across the board. That was the case, unfortunately, for the Texans and too many of them cost them. Yeah. Speaking of you mentioned Pep Hamilton and, you know, maybe it's partly his responsibility to say, OK, Nico hadn't got the ball in a quarter and a half. Let's get it to him before we're almost at halftime or some, somehow setting that up. But he took a lot of friendly fire from fans for his play calling. Did you feel like he emptied his bag of tricks against the Colts? There was certainly those whispers in the press box. And I think you have to give Pep Hamilton a little bit more credit than that. Um, maybe it was just the, the, the creativity was a shock to everybody, you know, from, from the get go, their first offensive series, you know, they've got an imbalanced line. Um, they're coming out with these, you know, weird formations. They ran a bunch of trips set a number of times on Sunday. They ran a flea flicker, flea flicker to perfection, by the way, with Rex Burkhead in the game, everybody's favorite pin cushion. And I don't know why, um, you know, I, I don't think it's fair to say at all that he emptied his bag of tricks. I think what you do in that situation is it's game one and you understand, you know, that you've got to get guys involved and ready for the regular season. You're not going to show too much in the preseason, and there's only so much you can replicate in practice. And, you know, that's an unfortunate thing that the NFL has just become within the CBAs over the years, but it is what it is. And so I think, look, you're going to try a whole bunch of different things, and you've got a, a creative mind, somebody that's been sitting on them these things for years now, Pep Hamilton, waiting to use this, um, you know, with the right guys in the NFL, and nobody's saying that they're the right guys, but you've got to figure it out. And I also think, too, it gives the Denver Broncos and other teams that are doing advanced scouting and will have this on film something extra to think about. And just knowing how – and I really think this is, this is important to note. You can be creative all, of you, all you want. We see it in college. We see it 
um, and, and the pros a lot more nowadays with these mobile quarterbacks and these athletic skill players, Robert. But you can be creative. You have to be disciplined. You have to be well organized. And I thought the Texans were both of those things with how creative they were on offense. Yes, there was miscommunication on the line that typically came, you know, with blitz pickup and in the run game. You know, guys were literally tripping over each other. Um, I think those things will come. But it's not to say the Texans can't be and execute the creative mind that Pep Hamilton has. One thing I'll say just from the game, and we didn't talk a ton about it, the, the decision not to go for it on fourth down and three at the end of the game. I don't know about you. I, a lot of things you could have issue with the last quarter and a half, but I didn't have any issue with that because look, they weren't moving the ball. It had been pathetic. They weren't stopping anybody. So just escape with the tie. And it felt like a victory at that point, because it looked like you were about to lose the game a couple different times in, in late in the fourth quarter and in overtime. Yeah, I, I always think it's interesting when coaches and players admit to a turning point in a game, especially when it goes against them. And everybody that I can remember talking to after the game on Sunday and even again on Monday uh, with Lovey Smith admitted that, look, the turning point in that game was the strip sack um, uh, from EJ Speed on, on, on Davis Mills. That changed the complexion, the energy, the momentum of the game just as quickly as the Texans felt like it was building for them. Uh, on that fourth and three in overtime, what else are you going to do? I mean, I totally understood that particular decision, and it made all the football sense in the world, especially in a game one. Two factors, I think, come into play if it's different, if it's one later in the season, and if it's two against a different non-divisional opponent. I think maybe you think twice and make a different decision in that instance, regardless of the lack of confidence you have in your defense or offense or that, you know, these guys are gassed, whatever the case may be. The problem was really the second one and the third and one, the two plays that preceded that fourth down and three, that was the biggest issue. And, you know, look, second and one, say what you will, Davis, you know, did he have the yips? Did he get happy feed? Was he scared? You know what was, Maybe so. I don't know. These are all things that Davis understands that he needs to correct and was asked about executing in crunch time today and had a really good, thoughtful response for that and understands the work that needs to put in. And at the end of the day, it comes down to game reps. But you cannot. This is the NFL. And I, I just don't understand with all of the game planning, all of the thought and really the time that you do have looking ahead at plays in certain situations. These are all things that players, not players, but coaches do in the booth. You have all of these quality control guys and assistants that should be looking at this stuff. You can't be so predictable and, and bunch the line and have, whether you have Rex Burkhead in or not, it doesn't matter. The guy can run, the guy can catch. It doesn't matter. You telegraphed a run on that third and one situation and you could have moved that ball from wherever the Texans were at that point in time, the 46, whatever it was, you could have put it on the goal line. They know what you're going to do, and that can't happen again. I want to go back to the strip sack because the communication on that play, you've talked about a little bit, the communication that the Texans had difficulty with, and there was some between Davis Mills and the receivers that they got to square up, and I'm sure they're saying all the right things about that. But this is what I saw in that particular play. Kenyon Green, who played 54% of the snaps on Sunday, didn't realize he had played that much until – uh, that report came out after the game that he did a fantastic job. There was a blitzer on the second level who came at him. 
He pushed the guy he was blocking over to Justin Britt, who took care of that guy. Then chipped the blitzer coming at him towards the outside. It looked like Tunsil didn't trust Kenyon or didn't think he could handle it. And that's why he let speed come off the edge untouched. And Sean, I, I looked at Kenyon's snaps overall, very solid. But I will say they definitely were trying to give him help a lot. Justin McCray, though, not particularly good. This is a, you know, this is a scrub, you know, somebody that's been a bouncing around the league, undrafted free agent. Uh, you think we're going to see more Kenyon Green this week? Oh, 100%. Hundred uh, percent. I I don't know about all the the pro football focus grades and stuff like that, but I can tell you this much: um, the coaches believe he's getting better. Players around him believe he's getting better. Uh, if you check my Twitter today, by the way, at Sean Bajani, uh, I put up a little kind of a funny inadvertent video. I was asking Kenyon Green a question about how far he thinks he'd come in his pass blocking over the course of the last three or four weeks. And in the midst of him answering, Laramie Tunsil, who lockers right next to him, is getting dressed. And as Kenyon Green is complimenting his offensive line coach, George Warhop, uh, Laramie Tunsil does a little, <clears throat> you know, <laughs> off and say, <laughs> wanted Kenyon to make sure that he gives uh, Tunsil his due credit. And that just about broke uh, – any legitimate response to answering my question up, but Kenyon, uh, you know, learning to be the pro that he wants to be did finish the answer. But I thought that was interesting too, because they both talked so much about helping uh, Kenyon, Kenyon receiving the help from Tunsil, Tunsil helping all the young guys out, whether it be on the offensive side or the defensive side of the ball, just talking technique and hand placement and stuff like that. And Kenyon for weeks now, which is why I've, I asked him the question, uh, in the locker room earlier, is he's constantly, since that first game that he played in the preseason, was not happy with his hand placement on pass protection. So, yes, it may have been a miscommunication via Tunsil on that blitz pickup, but also it might have been just instinct taking over and saying, look, I'm not going to let this guy shoot this uh, B-gap right here. You know, if it's going to come from anywhere, it's going to come from my gap. It's my responsibility. I got to help the young fella out. Um, and maybe he doesn't make that same decision if, in fact, he's more aware of where Davis Mills' position was at that point in time. You know, when you got a fast guy like Speed coming off the edge, you got to take care of that. And you got to trust anybody, whether they're a rookie or 11 years in the league, to do their job. A reminder for everybody that's going to criticize Lovey Smith and what, what, what the Texans did in this game. Kenyon Green got significant playing time. He was the majority of the snaps, but he didn't start. So forget even him. We saw, I want to say around nine guys that were either rookies or second-year players starting for the Texans, including Troy Harrison and Brandon Pierce and Stingley and Petrie and Roy Lopez. And you could go on and on with the list there of guys. That, Heinish. Yeah, Heinish as well. And uh, the, the secondary, it's a young Texan secondary, Sean, and they're going to have their hands full this week. Yeah, Jerry, Judy, Cortland, Sutton, you know, two of uh, Wilson's uh, favorite targets. And look, they've got a lot of other athletic guys in that receiver core, too, and they can run the ball. Um, but I think what everybody really looks at is are those top two receivers and the fact that Russell Wilson um, is such a mobile guy, um, is, you know, not shy about it. Um, but in particular, man, look, this is sports and even in life, man, you, you know, you know, when this happens, when 
when you don't get an opportunity to 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 show that you're you're still at your best or to even do your best you're going to the next time you get that opportunity and luckily for these guys it comes once every week for 18 weeks um Russell Wilson's going into this game with a chip on his shoulder so that's the first thing that these young players that really this Houston Texans team um has to be side-eyeing and pay attention to really um, that that's kind of what how I'm looking at it. Russell Wilson's going to try to prove to everybody that he is absolutely um, worth and deserves the ball in his hand in any situation for two hundred and forty five million dollars or whether it's for two dollars and forty five cents. He's just a guy that wants to ball. And Nathaniel Hackett took the ball away from him uh, on Monday night. And I thought that was embarrassing. But I, I think that's what the young guys have to really be wary of. Back-to-back weeks, man, they're facing two successful veteran Super Bowl-winning, right? Did Matt Ryan win a Super Bowl? Or am I just thinking of the one that he blew? He won if it had only gone three and a half quarters here at NRG Stadium. That's where it went went bad on him with Tom Brady. So, yeah. (laughs) Sorry. I hate to do that to Matty Ice, man. But nobody's probably called him Matty Ice in years. But he was definitely Matty Ice when he was leading three straight scoring drives on Sunday. Um Look, the, the pedigree speaks for itself. I mean, you know these guys are good. Maybe they're not as good as they once were, but that's the test. And back-to-back weeks. And what I thought was kind of fascinating, too, is the fact that Lovey Smith talked about on Monday, these guys, Stingley and Petrie in particular, but there were a number of guys defensively that played the full 90 snaps. And, you know, he's like, man, you know, we got to dial back on that. You know, we're certainly going to rotate more players in Denver. Aha, given the altitude, sure, yeah, whatever. A lot of the guys poo-poo that, and I'm glad they do because I think in large part it's a lot of crap, especially early on in the season um, because everybody's still trying to play into some sort of game shape, and even those guys that are going to call that their home stadium for eight, nine games this season uh, have to adjust to that too. But I'll just say this. It might be a good thing that, and it might have really been a grand part of the plan here that you get those young guys so many reps early on to get them ready for the altitude in Denver and that different kind of uh, anxiety and breathing and just recovery time. Um, I I think it's very well could have been part of the plan and we'll see how it works out um, this Sunday. Defensively, the Texans are built for, this altitude because they've got a bunch of guys on on that front seven that they can rotate in and out. And I think that's going to be real advantageous for them. The question is offensively, you know, what's going to happen with this offense and can this offense get it in gear a little bit more consistently? And I'm not scared of Russell Wilson. They're, they're only going to have six days rest. And frankly, Sean, I expect this to be another close game. I don't know if the Texans, can win it, but I, I expect it to be close again. You know, I went back and forth on this a little bit. Uh, I think it's a really good take, and I, I, I wouldn't disagree with you. Um, just like I'd said, uh, from a from a Broncos perspective, it does kind of concern me a little bit that Monday happened. You know, and they lose such a close game, and Russell Wilson and that team, which, you know, has got to be fully behind him at this point in time, and not to say that they already weren't, but they want to see their star quarterback thrive in those situations. They know that if they're going to get to the promised land and look, they're one of, I think the top 10, top 11, 12 favorites to, to go to the Super Bowl uh, this season. Nobody's really 
discounting and forgetting the Denver Broncos. I mean, they're a team right there in the mix. And those players know on the team that if they're going to get there and have a chance, Russell Wilson, that's who it's going to come down to. So I worry about that. From the Texans' perspective, you know, they should be going into Denver with a chip on their shoulder as well. You know, you could look at uh, Sunday's outcome against the Colts as half of a win, half of a loss, whatever the case may be. Lovey Smith said it Monday, and, you know, it, it kind of falls on deaf ears as it really should from a fan base that has been starved from, you know, real NFL football for a couple of years. But, hey, they're atop the AFC South. Yeah, sure you are, and I get that strategic maybe decision that you made. Um, for a millisecond on Sunday that contributed to that second and one, third and one, fourth and three call, whatever the case may be, fine. But I thought it was interesting. You could have said after Sunday's game that, you know what, making a decision like that, what kind of message does it send to a locker room with so many young guys, so many journeymen mixed in, NFL veterans that are trying to get these young guys bought in and go out and win? Go out and do this. This is how you win. And then your coach settles for a tie? I think the message that they sent, which I'll say it again, is that they were going to lose the game and they realized, hey, it's better to tie and let's let, let these guys walk away with some confidence. Like what I said before, let them walk away with some confidence because the odds were what was going on on the field was they were going to lose that game. And that's that's kind of where I was going to go. You know, you could look at it the way that I just broke down or you could look at it that way. And I think if you're a veteran um, in a locker room, you might say a certain thing and feel a certain way. Let's be honest. All these guys, it's innate. You know, you just come off of a, a fourth quarter collapse like that. You're feeling a certain type of way after a game, maybe even the next day, which is why they didn't make players available to us on Monday. You know, you kind of like decompress, watch film and, you know, get the message clear. Um, but I, I would guarantee you that at this point in time, and the locker room certainly felt like, uh, um, they'd moved on today. And the vibe was, is that, you know what, we did a lot of good things, uh, in that game that we can build on. Yeah, there was some bad, but Hey, tie win, lost the one constant that remains, especially when you have 17 or 16 more of these things to play is you're always trying to get better. And luckily you know, this happened in week one instead of uh, week 11 or week 17. Let's move to the Astros because a huge story. The, the Athletics' Ken Rosenthal reports that he wouldn't be surprised if James Click is out at the end of the year if the Astros stumble in the playoffs. Sean, this in the NBA. Upsets in baseball are easy. The Astros saw that in 1988. Kevin Brown did it to him. If this happens, it feels like personal issues. This is a personal thing between Crane and Click. If, if there's at all this thought. I, I just can't imagine you move on from Click after what he's done the last three years. 100% my thought. 100% my thought. And, you know, I'd love to hear and, and see the Astros retort here because, yeah, it's Ken Rosenthal. I get it. But I also kind of side-eye the national media at times and what information they're made privy to and what they do with it nowadays ever since the the cheating scandal broke. I mean, I feel like, you know, there's a little bit of angst in there from, you know, the national perspective. And so I'm, I'm really kind of hoping that maybe this seems far worse on the surface than it actually is um, in reality. But if this is a personal issue, um, you know, you don't get the opportunity. If you're Jim Crane, if you're 
um, click to run a team like this very often. This is a once in a lifetime opportunity for um, a baseball lifer and, and talking about click and really Jim Crane as well. Sure. He spent a lot of years building these businesses and things like that, but this is a guy that played baseball, understands it on a player's level and now is owning a team and running a team and making important decisions. And he's going to have a lot of them. It's not just that it's, it's two and a half weeks before the playoffs start. Something like this leaks out. And that that's what concerns me. Cause Ken Rosenthal legit guy he, he breaks a lot of stories and that's my concern and and, and my concern with uh jim crane is that you know maybe everything's gone right for him so far and he's the smartest guy in the room and he thinks hey i i, I can do whatever because now i'm the smartest guy i figured this thing out and i'm smarter than everybody else it sure it comes out two weeks before the playoffs are ready to begin but who knows how long ken rosenthal's held on to this story before breaking it you know, I think that's a very important factor there. I mean, this could have been something that he'd been made privy to or found out three, four months ago and decides, hey, two weeks before the postseason, <laughs> his team's playing really well. All eyes are on this ball club. Boy, wouldn't this be juicy? Or maybe, And maybe now is the fi finally the time that he'd gotten to get the stamp on this story and, and put it out there. I don't know. Like, these are the things that I always have to side eye. And look, at this point in time, I think you have to give the Astros credit here. Um, maybe wait until they respond to this. Let's see. Worry about next season in the offseason, whenever that begins for the Astros. And hopefully they're the last team to take a break. You know what I'm saying? And that's really the key here because you have been through something that no other professional organization in your league has ever been through this cheating scandal you know what kind of drama that brings and what kind of a distraction that brings and most of these players on this team right now never even had to deal with that they had to deal with like the little minute aftershocks even still to this day and Altuve has you know um put his big boy pants on and learned how to you know shake the criticism and that sucker might end up hitting 300 before the regular season ends his batting average is up to 291 now a sick on base percentage dude is rolling he's not letting any of this crap affect him and i think the astros as an organization have a similar mindset as they've shown to this point well here's the deal i just want to go through a little bit with click because people don't get it i believe this is the best astros pitching staff one through 12 of any i've seen in the last 30 years with the astros click gets no credit for the starters but it's easily the best bullpen of the jim crane era and remember that over the last two seasons click got stanick montero and neris without giving up any real assets except abraham toro who cares last season the bullpen was great in the playoffs thanks to trades for graveman yimmy garcia and phil maton the only noteworthy asset he traded was Miles Straw, and not only did he get Mayton, who performed well in the playoffs, but Jean or Diaz in that trade, who might be really good down the road. This year, he traded for Vasquez and Mancini without giving up a high-end prospect or a current Astro. He's done all this despite being left with a depleted farm system and with virtually no draft picks before a few weeks ago. And I know that Jim Crane has gone around a little bit, click, and he's the guy that's been credited with the Verlander signing and there was some other moves that he's made that uh you know but he also remember in the Jeff Luno era he was the guy that pushed Luno 
forced him, shoved him into the Verlander trade and the Granke trade. So, yeah, he has been right a lot, and he has got around those guys. But how about working together? Because Click's done really well at the margins, and that's what he's had to work with, with pretty much a salary set in place since he's been here. Yeah, um, and I wouldn't be surprised if some of those um, decisions in which Jim Crane probably stood up on a table and said, hey, this is my ball club. We need to make this kind of thing happen um, is maybe affecting, um, you know, Click doing his job the way that he wants to do his job. Um, But, you know, like that's sports. I mean, that's business. Those things happen. And at the end of the day, you have to kind of step back and look at the position you're in and weigh whether or not it's worth it. And when you have the opportunity uh, you know, like this Astros organization does to sustain, you know, for maybe another three or four, five years, what they've already done the last five years since winning the World Series in 2017. That doesn't happen. I mean, you got to go back to, you know, the dynasty of the Atlanta Braves, you know, through the 90s and what the Yankees did and winning all of those um, World Series that they put together leading into the early 2000s. Uh, this doesn't happen. And the Astros are, you know, at a golden opportunity right now and really leading the forefront in this city, which just five short years ago, Robert, you know, as a professional sports city with Astros, Rockets and Texan approaching a golden age of sports like we'd never seen before, only for it to be gone in a flash like that. The Astros have remained the own constant. And so I think it's super important for Jim Crane to do what he needs to do to um, if, if Click needs to go then you better make dang sure that too is an upgrade, whoever your new junior manager is. But that is a very tall ask at this stage. And it's not to be, it's not to be poo-pooed, man. It takes a long time to learn an organization. You might be a bright mind. You might be able to um, wheel and deal with the best of them, but understanding a farm system, understanding your players, their values and what it's taken to, to build the team. Somebody new coming in, there is a always a large learning curve. And I think that's where we don't give click and crane really at the impetus of that relationship beginning enough credit. I hope they work it out. Hunter Brown got to talk about him. He's been all he's advertised the first two major league starts, 12 innings, two earned runs, 0.92 whip unreal. Sean, he's definitely in the conversation for the postseason roster. Last year, the Astros had 12 pitchers in the ALDS. I've got 10 locks inch pitchers. This year, two spots left. The definites, can't argue with them. Verlander, Fromber, McCullers, Urquidy, Javier, Presley, Neris, Stanek, Montero, and Abreu. I want you to pick two bullpen pitchers from these four, two from four. You can tell me your preference or which the Astros are going to take, whatever you want to do, but let's keep it short because we only got a few minutes. Luis Garcia, Hunter Brown, Phil Mayton, and Will Smith. Pick two. I hate it, but I got to go with Garcia and Brown. <laughs> yeah, I, you, know, you got to go with Garcia here. and Brown. Garcia because he's proven. Okay, he's been there, done that before, and he's had a hell of a season. Okay, two Brown. There's not a lot of scouting reports there out on him, and you know he's got major league stuff. He could have pitched in the bigs probably a year ago. The guy's ready, and if it's not for an element of surprise. You're surprised anyway when he tries to bust a 98 mile per hour fastball by you and then, you know, leaves you, you know, looking like a cripple, you know, when he's throwing an 89 mile per hour slider at your belt and winds up in your ankle, you know. So I think for those reasons, you got to go with those top two. It's unfortunate that obviously you traded for a guy like Will Smith and um, Phil Maton, who has been Mr. Inconsistent out of the bullpen this year, 
you know, I think should find himself on the outside looking in. Yeah. And I'll agree with you. I would pick Garcia and Hunter Brown. I, I get this feeling because Will Smith's coming on. Dusty loves lefties. Garcia and Brown, I could see on the outside looking in, even Garcia, because, you know, not not a ton of experience in the bullpen. And, you know, he's got a weird delivery and a slow delivery and all that kind of thing. But uh, it, it, that's going to be an interesting decision and one to keep an eye out on. The last few days should have every Astros fan pumped. Jordan hitting again. Yeah, there was this minor controversy of he was he hurt? He wasn't hurt, but whatever. Who cares? It's going to it, it'll be tomorrow's news pretty soon. Yuli looks better than he has all year. Pena's turned a corner offensively. Aledmus Diaz is back. Uh, Hunter Brown looks legit. If Justin Verlander comes back with a good start and he's healthy and he gets over the calf issues, I mean, they're rolling at the right time. Yeah, it almost seems scripted, right? Everything that you just laid out. It's like it's supposed to happen this way, right? I, even when they were dealing with all of those things, Jordan hurt, not hitting, you know, all of their best players had gone through major slumps this season. It happens. It's baseball. It's like we're conditioned and we just forget every year it's going to be something. You just hope everybody's healthy because you trust these guys who have been there, done that, to go play winning baseball. Are they a favorite in the American League? Forget that. Are they a favorite to win the World Series again? That's the conversation that we should be having. And absolute, yes, they are one of the top two favorites to win the World Series. The only other one is whoever the hell comes out of the National League. And I ain't sleeping on the Mets. Yeah, National League is deep. A lot of good teams that scare me a lot more than the American League teams. But I don't want to say it too loud because you never know. It's baseball. Just a reminder to check our playlist on the YouTube channel. There are history playlists for all our teams. Every one of them. Astros, Rockets, Texans, Cougars. I've done nearly, oh, Oilers too. I've done nearly 300 interviews and 1,200 episodes. This week is our ninth anniversary as a podcast. I say every single time that this is the best Houston sports podcast. There might be a better Astros or a Rockets or a Texans. We cover it all. There are full interviews and short clips with Springer, Altuve, Correa, J.R. Richard, Jimmy Wynn, Seth Payne, Sage Rosenfels, Calvin Murphy, Simone Biles, all on the YouTube site. If you want to see who all we talked to and what they said, you can listen to them today. They're not dated. Other podcasts or channels focus on one team. We got them all. You won't get bored. Sean Bajani is going to be my new co-host. And for fans of Stephen Kerr, my old co-host, he'll be back for cameos. Definitely an Astros postseason, he's told me. But Sean plans to do two shows every week with me, and I will squeeze in other guests along the way. So keep on YouTube. Tell everybody you know. And Sean, I will see you on Sunday for the Texans, and I can't wait to see what they do against the Broncos this Sunday. Looking forward to it every time we get together, my man. Love it. You're listening to Houston Sports Talk. Hey, you can support the show by subscribing on YouTube and commenting on the videos. Listen to Houston Sports Talk on Spotify, Apple, Stitcher, and Google. Don't forget to tell a friend and share our show on social media. Spread the word, everybody. Thanks for listening.